All right. Happy Chuseok, everybody. I, I don't know what Koreans say when they. Uh, just Chuseok, Charbonneseo. Chuseok, Charbonneseo. Uh, Aaron and I, uh, we usually go down to Tegu, but because Chuseok falls on Sunday today, uh, this year, we, we could not go down because they're doing their, their meal and their chesa stuff right now. And so I just had to, we just called our families on the way to church, and uh, they are in our hearts and in our prayers. All right. <clears throat> How many of y'all ready for the message today? All right, so I'm continuing my message series on finances. If I say money, money. more money. money. Oh, y'all sound so wrong right now. <laughs> more money. More money. <coughs> so my, in my first message, I talked about how to steward financial prosperity and the important concepts of ownership and stewardship, how God is the owner of all things, and we need to have a proper perspective of our private property. We do not have unlimited usage of that property. There, is very, uh, there are actual limited rights that we have to our private property because we're not owners of it. We're actually just stewards. We are just there to manage what belongs to God. I also talked about the difference between expectation and entitlement. How entitlement will get you into a lot of trouble when you feel like you have a right to certain things. When everything good that you receive is a gift of God. It is a result of the grace of Jesus Christ on that cross. Um, In the next second message, I talked about social mobility of the saints. How as a church together, we have a call to impact this city. We have a call to impact this nation. We have a call to be salt and light to the nations. And I talked about how many of you in here, the demographic is you guys all have an education. Y'all all all know how to read. Many of you have college degrees. Some of you have master's degrees. One person has a doctorate degree. (laughs) But we're not not impressed by all that. But still, those things are a grace from God. And God expects us to do something with it. Not just to bury it. Not just to get married and have a good family and go to church and tithe and lift your hands and worship and then go to heaven. But there's an assignment while we have on this earth. And that assignment requires that we take what God's given us and we learn how to have social mobility upwards. Most of us are of a lower middle class here in Korea. As foreigners living in this nation, most of you do not make enough money to own your own property. You don't have enough money to start your own business right now. But if you will steward and you will believe God, He can take you on a social mobility upwards for the sake of His kingdom. I talked about also how no matter how high up you go, no matter how much money you make, as a Christian who represents the gospel, we must have a social mobility downwards. We must be willing and able to associate with the poor, with the broken, with the uneducated, no matter how up we go, the gospel says we must learn how to be incarnate to those we want to reach. We don't want no snobs in this church. Amen? Yeah. Ain't no snobbery up here. All right. Third message. I talked. It was called Opa Gangnam Style. And it was a message about guard your heart against all forms of covetousness. It can choke the word of God from being fruitful in your life. And... I talked about how the, the, this phenomena of a song, Opa Gangnam Style, is really a satire. Most people don't understand that this message, there's a message behind the song. And that message is that Koreans are too obsessed with materialism right now. They are coveting after all of this materialism. And the song is about how ironic most of the people that want to exhibit and display this Gangnam lifestyle this luxurious lifestyle actually can't afford it. And so the song, it shows that it looks like he's at a nice beach, but he's actually at a playground, right? He wants to ride horses like the rich do and play polo, whatever rich people do on horses. 
but he can, the best he can do is just a horse dance. All right, talked about covetousness and how that manifests in our generation in two forms, either materialism or miserliness. And uh, be sure to check out that message if you didn't get to listen to it. The last message I preached two weeks ago talked about the rights of the poor. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. And I talked about how the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law of Moses, contains cleaning laws, lending laws, property right laws over slaves, property right laws over land, and how all of these laws are provided for the rights of the poor to make sure that they are not forced to live in dependency indefinitely. But there are means provided for them to get back on their feet. The Mosaic law condemns social Darwinism, survival of the fittest. It condemns that. That has nothing to do with Jesus. That has nothing to do with the gospel. If your attitude has been one of social Darwinism, you need to start reading the Bible a little bit more. It's not about survival of the fittest. The poor are not left up to the mercy of the rich. God manifests his mercy through clear laws that he provided. Although we are not bound to those same economic laws in the Mosaic, in the Mosaic uh, law, the spirit of that law continues to apply to us today. It governs our ec- economic decisions. And we must learn to uphold the rights of the poor. I also talked about the concept of moral proximity in helping out those who are having a hard time. A helpful paradigm to keep in mind is moral proximity. First, you've got to make sure you're healthy, you're doing good. You can't really help others if you're, if, you're, if you're broke. Then you look to your family, your immediate family. Then you look to the family of God. And then you look to those outside the family, outside the church. And then I also talked about how in times of crisis, you kind of put aside moral proximity and you go and help those who are victims of an earthquake, of a tsunami, or whatever. <coughs> I hope you guys have been listening. Because this is a systematic teaching. You need to learn how to get it all. You can't just take one little episode and apply it to your life and have a balanced outlook on finances. You've got to devote yourself to this entire series if you're going to have a healthy perspective on finances. And like I prophesy, many of you in this church, you guys are going to go on to prosper greatly. You guys are going to go on to have positions of authority. You're going to steward great wealth. Great wealth. But I want you to have a strong, clear, biblical foundation where you can steward that influence and steward that authority and steward that money in a godly manner, in a God-pleasing manner. Today I'm going to continue the series. My fifth message in this installment. One, two, three, four, five. Then I'm going to talk about... I'll get to it later. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Is my mic too loud? Is that okay? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I'm going to first start with tearing down some false mindsets and interpretations that you have. And then I'm going to build a new one for you. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. You're going to need your Bible open for this sermon. We're going to go through a lot of different passages. 42 to 47. I'll read verse 42. You read the next verse until verse 47. Here we go. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Communists have used this passage 
to argue that the Bible promotes and advocates communism. There are other scholars who argue that the community distribution practiced here is actually a fictional reconstruction of the early church. It's a reconstruction made by the author. It's his attempt to paint the early church as this ideal community, reminiscent of uh, many Greek traditions. Other scholars interpret this passage (laughs) to mean that the early church did have a form of communism, but later on they abandoned it because it failed. All right, y'all, I just got three interpretations of this passage. Okay, now, personally, I have tended to avoid this passage when it comes to talking about finances. Most Christians believe that Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, is describing a super holy, super ideal church that we should all aim for, but will never achieve. (laughs) Just like Jesus told the rich young man, Sell everything you have and give to the poor. We believe that the early church here in Acts 2 was actually practicing that teaching from Luke. So we believe that these these early Christians, they were so virtuous that they renounced ownership over their private property so that they can have everything in common. They could just share everything. Hey, David, oh, hey, I, I need a suit this weekend. Can I borrow your suit? Well, Pastor Christian, you're a little shorter than me, but sure, here you go. <laughs> Says nothing belongs to me. We have everything in common. You can borrow my suit. You know? Hey, Pastor Aaron, can I, can I borrow some of your underwear? You know? One of the sisters went up to her and said, can I borrow underwear? Pastor Aaron, if, if, if we're this c- communism view, Pastor Aaron can't say no. Because nothing belongs to her. We have everything in common, right? And so we, <coughs> a lot of Christians... We think that this early, these early believers renounced ownership over their private property and they were practicing this ideal church community where everybody had everything in, in common. I know a classmate at, tor- at my seminary right now who is part of a church whose aim is to model themselves after this uh, Acts chapter 2 and 4, what they see in the early church. So they told me that, he told me that they live it all in a commune And they share all their food and clothes. And no one claims any private property rights. They believe that this is the ideal church. This is the virtuous church. Sounds a little bit more like the New Age communes that we have in America. (laughs) When I heard it, I wasn't thinking, how virtuous. I was thinking, man, good for you. Hope you enjoy that. <laughs> now, in my wealth and poverty class that I took in June, I discovered that all of these interpretations are based on a failure to study the grammar of the text in the original Greek language. None of these interpretations actually hold water when you look at the Greek text. Now, let me talk. Let's get into it, right? There's a church historian. His name is Justo Gonzalez, a famous guy. Wrote a lot of our church history books in our seminaries. He provides great insight into what was really happening. You see, in the Greek language, there are two forms for the past tense of a verb. One is the aorist. Everyone say aorist. The aorist form expresses a completed past action. Now, the other form is called the imperfect. Everyone say imperfect. The imperfect form of the verb indicates a continuing past action. So let me give you some examples because some of y'all don't know grammar very well. (laughs) The errors examples will be I ate, I ran, I studied. The imperfect examples that will be similar to this will be I was eating, I was running. I was studying. When did I do it? I did it in the past. But I was doing it. I didn't tell you when it ended. I studied. That means, all right, you, you began studying and you ended the studying. 
But when I say I was studying, I'm in the middle of telling you something. It's imperfect. It's not completed. It's a continue. It, it carries the idea of continuity. Okay, you guys understand that, right? The verbs in Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 47, they are all in the imperfect. Now, look with me here. Now, some translations, unfortunately, translate these verses, verse 44 and 45 as an example. They translate it as an errorist. So they would translate verse 44 and 45 like this. Now, all who believed together, uh, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them all as anyone had need. It's the errorist translation, which is a completed past action. The errorist verb form makes it seem like all these believers, they once for all sold everything they had and put it into this common treasury that everyone shared. But instead, the verses should read in the imperfect. Now, the NASB translates it with the imperfect, and it reads like this. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Instead of saying they sold their possessions and property and shared, it says they were selling and they were sharing meaning it was a continuous activity not a once for all communism selling and redistribution you guys with me (coughs) so this practice was not for the sake of renunciation of private property instead it was for the sake of those who had need So Gonzalez summarizes, the goal is not an abstract or dogmatic notion of unity, nor a principle of purity and renunciation, but it is the meeting the needs of others. It is in the meeting, but the meeting, but meeting the needs of others. So it's not about renunciation for the sake of it. It's about meeting the needs, meeting the needs of those who are struggling, those who are having a hard time. Now, Acts tells us that one of the most generous givers was Barnabas. And I'm sure that his generosity stirred up a little bit of jealousy in that community. Because we, we read about what Barnabas did in Acts 4. The very next chapter, it tells us about a married couple who sold a piece of property. And then they kept back some of the proceeds after pledging to give it all. In Acts chapter 5, Peter tells Ananias... While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, didn't this belong to you? Ain't nobody tell you, force you to sell it. It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Meaning all the sales of the proceeds. You didn't have to give it all. But you told us you give it all. But you didn't give it all. (laughs) Peter clearly tells Ananias that he was under no obligation to sell the property and he was under no obligations to give the sales, the proceeds of that sale. But Ananias and Sapphira did so and then lied about it and they both died. The point of my message today, don't lie about your offering or you might die. I'm kidding. All right, let's move on. This story, it shows us that the selling of property and the sharing of these proceeds was not a communistic practice governed by an obligation to renounce your private property rights. But it was rather governed by the needs of those who were struggling, and it depended on the free will of those who decided to give. There is no compulsion here. You have to understand that, all right? In communism, right, when the communists come knocking at your door... And they say, hey, from now on, our country is going to practice communism. And this private property of yours, this huge 300-acre estate that you have 
passed down your family for four generations, the government is now going to own it, and we're going to seize it. Right? You can't tell the communist government, uh, I would like to opt out of that. No, thank you. You can't tell them that. Because if you do, the communists will come back later, and they won't knock on your door then. Right? In communism, there's an obligation. There's a compulsion. You don't have no choice. In North Korea, ain't nobody own their land. It all belongs to Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, to the government. Isn't that right? Some of you, you own land. You own, <coughs> I don't know if anyone owns land here. <laughs> okay, John Westfall owns land. Okay, John. Uh, Westfall owns some land. Where is it located? Michigan. In Michigan. Where in Michigan? Okay. <laughs> Must be some expensive land, John. <laughs> anyway, in, in communism, there's a, there's a compulsion, right? But in this practice, it was all based on the free will of those who were giving. It was governed by the needs of those who had that need. Now, go back to Acts 2.42. And I want to focus today on the word... Fellowship. Everybody say fellowship. fellowship. In the Greek, this word is the word koinonia. Everyone say koinonia. koinonia. Actually, it should be koinonia. koinonia. The accent is on the O. The second O. Koinonia. koinonia. Now, koinonia, <coughs> the common understanding by scholars is usually taken up to mean that the people spent time together and they had good relationships within the community. Right? That's what a lot of scholars will commonly understand koinonia to mean. To the layman in modern times, most Christians think fellowship is about donuts and coffee, <laughs> volleyball and flag football. Let's, let's have some fellowship. Let's, let's, after the church service today, let's go out for some men's fellowship. Come on, all the men. Let's get together and have some fellowship. We think fellowship means, and we get excited too, man. Oh, yeah. Get some fellowship going on. Is there going to be food there? You know, and some church cultures, you don't got fellowship until you got some food. And if the food is good, then you call it good fellowship. If food ain't so good, you say, we need to do some more fellowship. Some other time. <coughs> we think fellowship means hanging out, spending time together. That's what fellowship is all about, right? But the word koinonia means much more than that. It also carries the meaning of partnership as in a business venture. Luke 5.10 tells us that the sons of Zebedee were Koinonia, which is a related term of koinonia. They were koinonia of with Peter, meaning that they were business partners with Peter. It was the sons of Zebedee and Peter's fish company. <laughs> they were business partners. And outside the New Testament, the word has the same usage, denoting this idea of partnership. The church historian Justo Gonzalez writes, koinonia means, first of all, not fellowship in the sense of good feelings toward each other, but sharing, learning how to share. Philippians 3.10, uh, if you want to turn there, let's turn to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And keep it open there. I'm going to look at another verse. Philippians 3.10. I'll read that for us. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Now I want, I want to focus on the phrase may share his sufferings. In the Greek it literally means that I may know the koinonia of his sufferings. It translated 
as the word share. Why? Because koinonia carries the idea, the meaning of sharing. But if you really literally translated this, it could also mean that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. Carries the meaning of sharing, right? And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10.16, you don't have to turn there. I'll read that for you. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now the ESV here translates this word participation is actually the Greek word koinonia. And this koinonia can also be translated as the word communion. This is where we get communion from. Holy communion. You know, the exercise of eating the, the, the bread and the, and the wine. It, it comes from the translation of koinonia as the word communion. Uh, go to Philippians 1, 5 through 7. Hey, add, give me 10 more minutes after that. Philippians 1, 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is actually koinonia. Because of your fellowship in the gospel. Because of your sharing in the gospel. Because you have given to the ministry of the gospel. You have partnered with me in the ministry of the Because of your koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I know, I hold you kin in my heart. I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers. Everyone say partakers. partakers. You are all partakers with me of grace. Now, I want you to also look at the word partakers. That word in the Greek is sug. Koinonos. is Another way you can translate that is you have been joint partners with me of this grace, of this ministry. You've been joint partners. So you have to understand this word koinonia is a lot more deeper than just donuts. You hear what I'm saying? Paul thanks the Philippians for sharing and partnering with them in the gospel. They had a unique partnership with Paul. In other words, koinonia is much more than just hanging out. It involves the sharing of goods and finances as well as feelings. Oh, I'm jacking up your fellowship, meaning of fellowship for you right now. Not just the sharing of food, but the sharing of finances. Not just the sharing of time, but the sharing of finances. Justo Gonzalez says, the koinonia is not simply a spiritual sharing. It is a total sharing that includes the material as well as the spiritual. You know, sometimes we have a good time of hanging out and we go, man, I just, I'm just so full. Oh, you mean about the dinner? No, I'm just so full in our conversation. What an edifying conversation. I just shared with you all these spiritual conversations. I feel so full. Right? We had such a good time of fellowship. Next time, I want you to think of fellowship a little bit more than that. It's not just the sharing of spiritual things, but material things as well. Come on. Think about it for a moment. You sitting there. Let's go to, let's go to dinner later. <coughs> You go on a dinner later. Think of somebody as a good example. All right. My, my brother James Lee here, right? James Lee. <laughs> my old roommate, James, right? You, you go, you holler at James. Like, yo, yo, James, what's up, man? I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't talked to you in a while. Let's fellowship. Let's go out for some fellowship after service. And James is like, all right, I'm down, I'm down. And then you go out to fellowship and you're like, man, I just want to go bug wild today. Let's go get some Brazilian barbecue. And James is like, uh, I'm actually, uh, uh, let's, can we, I'm not feeling that. My stomach don't feel so good. Can we go get something else? 
And like, okay, what you want? What you want? Let's go get some. Uh, um, let's go to Torch and eat the cafeteria food for 2,500 won. <coughs> and you're like, no, 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 it's all good, it's all good, man. Let's just let's just go, let's go over here. Let's get some shabu shabu. And James reluctantly agrees. Why does he reluctantly agree? It's because he don't have no money. He broke. He broke. He's trying to hint to you, imply to you, but you ain't picking up the hints. And let's say over the dinner, you're eating shabu shabu. And James is worried, like, if I withdraw money from the ATM, am I going to have enough money to pay for this shabu? How am I going to do this? Right? He's all worried. He's all embarrassed. And then over dinner, he gets to share with you how much he's struggling. And y'all have this dinner, and you hear out how much she's struggling economically. And you're like, all right, all right, all right yeah, I'll pray for you. Let's talk about the sermon. <laughs> Come on, this, we ain't doing fellowship. I don't want to talk about your money. Let's talk about, let's do some fellowship. Talk, let's share spiritual truths. Let me get edified spiritually. <laughs> now, seriously, if that's what you do to a guy who's having an economic hardship, the Bible calls that foolishness. Oh, I'll, I'll get to a verse that actually addresses that very example later. We got to think of fellowship much more holistically. Now, this fellowship in the early church was countercultural to the Roman understanding of private property. It, it was completely radical compared to their embedded economy. Remember what embedded economy means? That means an economic system that doesn't operate for the sake of economic interests, but for the sake of um, institutional interests like marriage, politics. So people made economic decisions not for the sake of the economy. They made it for the sake of their child, for the sake of their daughter's marriage, for the sake of their son who wants to get elected as a senator. It was an embedded economy. This church practice of koinonia, it jacked up the Roman understanding. Because remember... Romans were all about preserving the social status. You stay poor, I stay rich. And they even had this system called patronage. Where rich people would do things. And it looked like it was virtuous. But there was actually an ulterior motive. You know, uh, the greatest patron in Rome was Caesar. So in the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman society, the greatest patron was often seen as Caesar. You know what Caesar would do? He would spend all of his wealth to build these beautiful bathhouses for the public. Build these beautiful roads and, and build these beautiful, uh, you see all these like, op, uh, not opera houses, but what are they called? The theaters, right? And the stadiums, these huge stadiums. They didn't have American football back then, but they built these huge stadiums. Where Christians later on were thrown in with the lions to get killed. You know who built those stadiums? A lot of times it was Caesar. But you know what Caesar was doing? He wasn't like, look at my generosity. How virtuous. Like that was what what was on the exterior. His ulterior motive was, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Right? I I build these bathhouses and stadiums for you. I get your loyalty. So there was a system of patronage where rich people would do favors for poor people, but it was always for the sake of getting their vote for the election, getting their loyalty for whatever community groups there there were, little unions or whatever they had back then. But the Christian fellowship understanding didn't involve any of that. You gave and you gave freely. You gave generously with no strings attached. You know, you ever, you ever see, even in Korean culture, I see some of this. <coughs> you know that when your parents, most Korean parents, let me just be real. I'll be real. Right? I was shocked when I found this out. Most Korean parents, when they go to a funeral, wedding, anything, they keep track of how much money they give to somebody else's daughter's wedding. Do you know that? And then when, when your son and daughter gets married, that's why it's so important it's not just their son or daughter getting married. It's whatever they put out, they now expect that money to come back in. 
That's why it's so important that they get married and that their children get married apart from each other. You ever wonder why they don't want uh, a son and a daughter to get married in close proximity? You know why? Because when you, when you invite these wedding guests, they may not have enough money to pay you back the amount that you gave to their weddings. And so they would rather space it out. Make sure I get my money. What, what is that? There's no giving going on. <clears throat> it's just a system of like, oh, yeah, I celebrate your daughter's wedding. You better give me that money back when my daughter gets married. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like true giving only takes place among like the closest friends and the closest relatives. Everyone else, man, they keep track. I was shocked, man. They have this guest book. You know what the guest book is for? To make sure they can collect later on. But like, or make sure they give to, your, uh, to, to you later on. They, they want to know who came and who gave. Exact amount. So they can give back later. Y'all need to watch for that. That's like that's like a like a Roman system of patronage. It's just I scratch your back, you scratch mine. But the Christian fellowship was I scratch your back and that's it. I help you out and that's it. I help you out because you need help. That's it. <coughs> the only expectation will be later on if your church or your city had an economic hardship and you sold into some other church in another city. There was a healthy expectation that that church, if they are abundantly blessed, that they would sow it back in when the time came. That was the only expectation. But it wasn't like the string attached. Like, what are you doing, Church of Jerusalem? Why aren't you paying us back? There was none of that. There was no entitlement. You know what I'm saying? All right. Let me move on. Other evidence that the Christian community, the fellowship, included material as well as spiritual sharing can be found in Paul's letters. In Paul's letters, he takes offerings from churches that have an abundance, and then he redistributes that money to churches that are struggling. And in, the, in his letters, the ch- which church struggled the most? Okay, man, no, y'all read your Bible. The church at Jerusalem, all right? The church at Jerusalem have financial difficulty. So here, the, the church at Philippi gave uh, generously, and the Corinth, Corinth church, man, they were like all jacked up there. But Paul made it very clear, I, I, I want to collect an offering to give to Jerusalem. Okay? So Jerusalem was a church that really struggled. Paul did not see this responsibility as a burden to his apostleship or an addition to his apostleship. He saw it as part and parcel of his apostleship. It was an integral part of his responsibilities as an apostle. Was to make sure he collected from those who had abundance and redistributed to those who were struggling. That's what fellowship is all about. Uh, Galatians 2, 9 through 10. When James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What is Paul saying? When the apostles... They were scared of Paul because they didn't believe that Paul had a real conversion. What did Paul do before he got converted? He was going around from town to town, door to door, killing Christians. So when the apostles, Peter, James, and John, they finally gave Apostle Paul and was like, gave Paul and were like, all right, we believe you're a Christian. And we can see that God's doing a powerful work among the Gentiles through you. So they gave him the right hand of fellowship. But what what was the right hand of fellowship? What's that even mean? Well, one thing made it they made clear these pillars of the church, they insisted, Paul, make sure that you help the poor. And Paul says, I'm already on it. This is the thing I'm already eager to do. What, what does that tell you? That tells you that in his apostleship, he saw the redistribution of this money as a very in- integral part of his ministry. Paul's theological understanding for the offerings that he was taking for Jerusalem, it can be best seen in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? This is a wonderful teaching here. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4.
verses 1 through 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own free will. There's no obligation. They gave freely, the, the people of Macedonia. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the ESV, right? Look at verse 4. Begging us earnestly. The Macedonian uh, Christians, they begged Paul earnestly for the favor, for the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. Well, here's one thing that you don't get in the ESV. Taking part is actually koinonian, which is a derivative of koinonia. The church, the Christians at Macedonia, they were eager to take part in this privilege. They urged Paul, let us take part in this fellowship. In verse 8, look at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul stresses to the Corinthians that this offering is not a command. You're under no obligation to take part in this offering. And then fast forward to chapter 9, verse 5. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift. Everyone say willing gift. Once again, it is not an obligation, a communist type of obligation. Paul says, this offering, I want you to take part in it as a willing gift. Look at verse 7. This is the famous verse that we, some people try to use on tithing. Uh-uh. All right? Uh-uh. Nah, that's not the context. Look at the context. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up in his mind, not real, reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul here, he's talking about the practice of fellowship. Fellowship, partnership, sharing. Not just sharing the teaching of God, but sharing material blessing. And sharing it to those who are not so blessed, who are having a hard time. God loves a cheerful giver who participates in this fellowship. Not under compulsion. But who does it willingly and joyfully? Come on, this is good. Just as Ananias, he was not under any obligation to give, Paul makes it clear that the Corinthians are under no obligation to give. He wants them to give from a cheerful heart because God wants, God loves a cheerful giver. And he also teaches them he who sows generously will reap generously. So he's also alluding to a, a concept of reward. You partake in this fellowship, you partake in this offering, and you will also reap generously. You will reap materially as you are sowing immaterially. There's an expectation of reward for acts of faith. The voluntary nature of the offering does not mean that there were no goals or guidelines. Paul makes it clear that the goal is equality. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13 to 15. Look at verse 13 to 15. I'm going to read that. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, a matter of equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, maybe at a future time when they get better. So that... There, that there may be fairness, that there may be equality. Verse 15 is very important. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is a uh, uh, Old Testament verse, uh, Exodus 16, 18. <coughs> 
in Exodus chapter 16, Paul here, he cites the redistribution, the miraculous redistribution of manna that the Israelites experienced in the desert. Let me sum up what happened. In Exodus 16, God provided manna. God told them, go out and you get exactly the amount you need for the size of your family. But people being people, some people went out and they gathered more manna than they were supposed to. And other people, they were too lazy and they they gathered just a little bit of that manna. But the miraculous part was when they got home and they measured it, they found that it was all redistributed. So that each household had the exact amount God had ordered. The church historian Justo Gonzalez says, this is the miracle of equality which shows the will of God and which Paul is exhorting the Corinthian Christians to imitate. Paul says, in the Old Testament, God there did it miraculously. In the New Testament, God wants all of you to do it willingly. Do you hear what I'm saying? So, so if, if somebody in your covenant community is doing bad and you're doing good, you know, you're not supposed to look at them and just say, hey, hey, it's because I have more faith than you. It's because I'm walking in my inheritance and you, you, you know, I don't know what you're doing with your inheritance. Look at you. Look at you struggling. This must be the will of God. It's the will of God for me to be blessed and for you to struggle. Good luck. Let me pray for you. Let's talk about the sermon and then goodbye. <laughs> Paul <coughs> quotes the Exodus account to show what God's heart is. When he blesses his people, he blesses them with an invitation. Will you give to those who are in need? Will you, will you manage this wealth in a way? Where everyone's needs are provided for. That's my will. That everyone's needs are provided for. So that those who are poor don't get poorer. What happens in America? In the American capitalist society. As much as we love capitalism, what happens? The rich get richer. Like Tupac said. The rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. But isn't that right? Go to urban America. Go to Philadelphia. Let me tell you about Overbrook High School. Fells High School. You go to these inner city urban high schools. Like less than one fourth of the student population graduate. And it's not that they're, they're stupid. It's not that they're not smart. It's that the environment that the community has created and that the government perpetuates is an environment that oppresses the poor. Not only doesn't provide opportunities, it oppresses the poor. This is what goes on in Philadelphia. This is what goes on in most urban America. At least in the church, we don't want to look anything like that, do we? Here at the church, it should be different. And as it is different here, the church community can be salt and light to the world out there. But if we're not practicing it here, you can have all the most ideal Heart, ideal visions to try to reform urban America. You're never going to do it. You don't even know what it looks like. You never walked it out. You never exercised it. You never experienced it yourself. I'm going to close with John's letters. Let's go to um, 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. I'm in chapter 1. First John chapter one is real good right here. Give verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. First John is toward the end of the New Testament. That's okay. 
That which we have seen and heard, we, also, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, this is talking about the fellowship I know. Oh, that sharing of feelings and, <laughs> and joy. That's the fellowship I know. All right? And you think, all right, our, the author of First John knows what I'm talking about, right? It doesn't end there. Look at verse 6 and 7. The author goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, look at this. Whoever says he, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Wait, I thought we were talking about fellowship with God. But check this out. Talk about fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The author <coughs> is saying, when you don't have fellowship among yourselves, you can, you can never have fellowship with God. You can't really experience true fellowship with God if you're not having fellowship with each other. That's why the Christian life is not just this individual Religious practice of believing the right things. That's the Christian faith. The Christian life is, is experienced in a community. You experience the depths of his love by relating to, by loving and forgiving and being hurt by and then forgiving the people of God. You have fellowship here among God's people. You will have fellowship with God is what the author of John is saying here. And then look at chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. This is what I pointed out earlier. It's real good. I'll close with this. I'll I'll start from verse 16 because I like verse 16 too. Go to 16 and 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. A lot of times we think, oh yeah, I'm willing to lay down my life for you, James. If a grenade came into this church right now, I'll jump on it just for you. Now, I'll lay down my life for you, right? Man, it was a lot more practical than that. It's not all like crazy dramatic. It's just real practical. Go read the next verse. If anyone has the world's goods, if anyone is so blessed, he's living that condom lifestyle. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Or in actions and in truth. (coughs) Today, I want to reconstruct your idea of fellowship. When your brother is struggling, you know, let me, let me be real right now. There are people in this community right now, and they're struggling. And by the way, I'm going to set up some kind of formal offering. Well, we will take it regularly. I don't know, once a month, every two months, whatever, right? We'll do some kind of offering. And we'll call it koinonia or fellowship, whatever we'll end up calling it, right? But it will be an offering given willingly, joyfully by those who want to participate. And if you don't want to participate, don't do it. Whatever you do, don't, part- don't say, I want to participate and then lie about it. You might die. <laughs> don't do that. <coughs> Willing participation, we collect the money, and then the church leaders will be made aware of certain situations that the, uh, the individuals in the community by the way, it's covenant community here for New Philly. All right? You come out, you visit our church four or five times, but you're not willing to commit. Next week, we have membership class, right? That's what membership class is all about. You learn what our church is about. You learn our values. You learn what it means to be in commitment to this church. You, you learn what it means to be covenant with this church. And you do it. If you don't do it, then you're just a guest. You guys hear me? For those who are in the membership, those who are in the covenant community that are struggling... Our leaders will be made aware of certain situations and we will distribute those funds to help people get back on their feet. How's that sound? 
Now, right now, there are not many instances, right? I can think of a few right now, actually, off the top of my head. I think of a few, right? And there are people, some people are struggling. And you know what? They shouldn't have to, like, hang their head down and lose their dignity over it. Hey, those who are struggling, don't lose your dignity over that. Rescue is coming. Provision is coming. Now, right now, as singles, most of us, if you don't have a job, you don't have money, you got kicked out the country, right? Most of the expats here, you got to have a job, right? So we don't have many of those problems. But let me tell you something right now. In 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, as people get married, people get, I mean, God forbid, but some people may get widowed. Some people hit uh, bankruptcy. We're going to, by the way, we're going to face all kinds of diverse issues later on, by the way. Or maybe, you know, your spouse goes crazy with gambling. And we're trying to heal and deliver and get that demon of gambling off of that person. But that person just goes and wastes all your money. And you, and you got five kids. I'm like, man, why'd you get five kids? Look at you. <laughs> Told you, five kids. <laughs> just kidding. Now, have many children. Have many children. <laughs> Later on, when we have a diverse set of situations, this koinonia... Is going to be so valuable. And nobody has to look down on anybody who receives this offering. And next week, I'm going to talk about the how of helping the poor. I talked about the rights of the poor. Today, I talked about moral proximity. What fellowship really means within the covenant community. I'm calling you guys to a practical application of that real soon. And a personal application. You guys do it among yourselves, but also as a church, we will have something set up. Next week, I'm going to talk about the how of helping a person who's really struggling or in poverty. How to really help them without destroying their dignity or causing an unhealthy dependence. All right, and that's going to involve missions. That's going to go out to poverty, like in general. So I'm going to talk about that next week. But today, I'm talking about the covenant community. I'm talking about within the household of God. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, hey, James, I know you're implying to me that you're struggling. But, man, I just want to talk about the sermon. And you close your heart against somebody like James who's having a hard time. The Bible, the Bible says, how does God's love abide in you? You could sing songs and lift your hands all you want, but how does God's love abide in you when you are acting like a little hypocrite? Let us love not in the word or talk. Sometimes talk is cheap. You know, like the woman, like, like, a, like a lady in, in like a five-year relationship, talk is cheap by that time. I love you, baby. I love you. I promise we won't get married, man. Talk is cheap. Shut up. Where's my ring? <coughs> That's what the Bible's saying. Let us not love with words and talk, but with actions and in truth. <coughs> this is action and truth. Hey, James, hey, uh, I noticed you don't want to get Brazilian barbecue. You know what? Tonight, I'll bless you. I'll treat you. But you know what? It doesn't end there. While you're having dinner, you go, hey, James, this might be a little embarrassing, but I just want to ask you, uh, is everything all right? And then James starts to cry like he usually does. <laughs> Man, I've, been, I've been struggling for the last four months, but all people want to do is talk about the sermon. Thank you for asking, man. I've been, I've been, this happened. My business has been bankrupt. Man, I'm just having a real hard time. Hey, James, hey, check this out, man. What if I, what if I, okay, and then the how will come ne- next week, okay? <laughs> what if I help you in these practical ways, right? That's what true love is all about. That's what fellowship with God is all about. When you have fellowship with each other. Holistic fellowship. Let's, let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much that, God, you are the God who abundantly provides for all of your children. <coughs> and your provision doesn't fall out from heaven. Your provision comes through the actions and the love of your people. 
And I pray that in this community, each and every one will be provided for. That every need will be provided for. That no one will ever have to lose their dignity in talking about these things. But they will learn to receive the grace of God through a fellowship. A fellowship that involves more than just the sharing of food, but also includes material and finances. We know that, Lord, as some people who are struggling, it's always just for a season. But when, when the people of God don't rise up, that struggling, it lasts longer than you had ordained. It lasts too long. And I pray that, Lord, in this house, Lord, we'll learn to be content in whatever situation. But I pray that, Lord, whatever season in which we have lack, because of the fellowship of the saints here, that season will never be long-lasting. And people who are struggling today, they will go on to have a great abundance later. And they will remember the manifestation of God's love. And they will multiply it a hundred times over to others. Touching cities and nations for your glory. Release the spirit of fellowship here in New Philly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.